This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And one of the most important subjects we talk about regularly is marriage. And that brings us to our Relationship Radio Hour. And what we do is we bring on J.P. DeGance, one of the best experts in this country. He runs a group called Communio. And you can learn more about them at communio.org. And what they do is they heal marriages. And they've done remarkable work around this country. And you're about to hear from two people. First, you're going to hear from Patrick and then Rebecca Myers. And by goodness, when we go into relationships like marriage, we bring our own personal stories and baggage to the game. Let's start with Patrick. Take it away, JP. Patrick grew up attending a church and school where his father worked. He was one of only two black kids there. And while he had some great friends, too often, many others, particularly the adults, did all the wrong things. That was actually the first place where I experienced racism. That's the first place I got called a nigga, and that was by a teacher. That's when I knew that white people saw me differently. And then like the, the church confused me. We would have a whole separate Sunday school for the black kids. It was called Sea Church. And they would have this whole bus ministry thing and get all these kids to Sunday school. That's when I started to really have my eyes open to that whole thing that, you know, I was different. You know, there was really nobody to really date but white girls because that's all that was there. And so naturally, that's who I was trying to date. And the backlash I got from the staff, there was a superintendent at the time that had threatened me about dating white girls, how I needed to watch my step and how they would fire my dad. And when I saw that, that was one of those things that completely just turned my heart away from the church and away from God. I didn't want to have anything to do with a God that had people like that, who had hearts like that, where they couldn't see me for me, but the color of my skin. Disconnected from God and his faith, Patrick wanted to leave his childhood community behind. So after graduating from high school, Patrick joined the Navy. For some, military life offers a clean slate after a messy childhood. But for Patrick, who is generally a well-behaved kid, who is now understandably angry at the world, Navy life gave him opportunities to get into all sorts of trouble. He got into drug use, ecstasy, and even dealt drugs. He found friends to help him pass drug tests to remain on active duty. By the time he left the Navy, Patrick's dark road had taken him into a life of violence. He became well-known among friends as a fighter and a brawler. That is until one night when his fighting got him into some serious trouble. I was in a club, I was dancing, and this girl started dancing with me. The next thing I know, this guy comes up to me and he's flipping out on me about me dancing with his girl. And I was just like, yo, your girl came up to dance with me. You know what I mean? I, I don't even know who she is. You need to check your girl, man. And he slapped me. And I beat this guy, I almost killed him. What I didn't know at the time was that his uncle was the person that owned the club. They were very, very deep in the game. And so I just happened to cross the wrong person at the wrong time with the right connections that knew a lot of the people that I was involved with. And the uncle started closing in on where I was at and I found out. And so it was just time where I knew I was gonna die. I had this feeling of impending doom. Like I knew my time was coming and I pretty much resigned myself to it. I had just got done doing some laundry 
And this thing just kept saying to me, just call out to me, call out to me, because I didn't know what to do. And I was just like, so afraid of death, because I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. And then on top of that, I was high out of my mind. So I was like, just call out to me, pray. And I was like, you know, pray to who? You know, and I just like, but then I remembered, because during this time of my life, like for almost five years, I had forgotten completely who God was. And I called out to him. I was like, God, if you could get me out of the situation, I will do whatever it is that you want me to do. And it was crazy because five minutes later, there's a knock on the door. And it was my best friend, Sean. We were best friends in high school. And we joined the military together when we were 17 and 18. And I hadn't seen this guy in probably eight years. And he just took one look at me and he was just like, dude, you're coming to Virginia with me. That was my beginning stage of getting clean, like my mind changing from being a dealer and being violent and just to actually just enjoying my life. With the help of friends and family, Patrick straightened out much of his life and eventually returned to Jacksonville, Florida, where he helped his father with his landscaping business. During his high school days, there was one lady named Rebecca who he had dated. Now, about 10 years later, seemingly a lifetime ago, the couple reconnected. But before we get there, Rebecca, of course, had been through her own journey. I lived in Jacksonville with my mom and my stepdad and my dad. I never got to see him. My life really took a turn when my parents decided to send me to a Christian school. So I actually started to go to the same Christian school that Patrick went to. Now, he was two years older than me, but his parents were my dean and my computer teacher. And I started to go to church there and his father was my youth pastor. I got to meet Patrick and I got to know him and we started dating. We dated for for about three years. He took me to my junior prom and my parents weren't thrilled with the fact that I was dating a black man, but they loved his parents and, and the fact that I was a part of their family and I was always with them at events and at their home, and that was okay. But as soon as Patrick and I got serious and started talking about getting married and, and what we wanted to do with our lives, then it all of a sudden became a problem. At that point, I was choosing Patrick over them, and it started to cause a really big separation between me and my parents. At the time, I didn't realize that Patrick was aware of that. And um, at that point, we separated. He started to push me away. And so after that, I was heartbroken and, and didn't know what to do. And we'll continue with the story of Patrick and Rebecca Myers. Our Relationship Radio Hour continues after these messages.
And we continue with Our American Stories and our Relationship Radio Hour with J.P. DeGance and the folks at Communio. And we're back with the story of Patrick and Rebecca. After they broke up, Rebecca got together with another man and moved away with him. They had three kids, never married, but he was abusive to her. And so she left him. Let's pick up where we last left off. Just after that, I found out that my grandmother was dying. I made arrangements to come back to Jacksonville for a weekend. While I was here in town, I went to church and I ran into Patrick's mother. And she said, oh, I can't believe that he's not here. You're the, the one that, that always got away. We always told him he should have married you when he had the chance. And, and I just, I, I thought it was, was funny and, and I said goodbye and I gave her my phone number and I'd like to try to keep in touch with you. And then I left and I went straight to the airport to come back to Dallas. Um, while I was on my layover in Charlotte, I got a phone call and it was Patrick. I called and she hung up on me. So I was just like, okay. I thought maybe the phone hung up, so I gave it a couple minutes. And so I was like, all right, let me try this again. I called back. Uh, I was like, wait, wait, don't hang up. And she was like, is it really you? And I'm like, yeah, it's me. And I told her, I was like, well, you know, I always told myself that if I if I was to ever find you again, I was going to marry you. So I was like, are you with somebody and that kind of stuff? And she was like, no, I'm not, I'm not with anybody. And I was like, so, like, you're, you're single and all that kind of stuff? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, well, I'm going to marry you, just so you know. She didn't say anything for a couple of minutes. And she was like, are you being serious right now? And I'm like, yeah, I'm dead, I'm dead serious. I said, whenever you ever know me to not be serious, I tell you stuff. And I was like, I always knew I should have married you. And that was the biggest mistake of my life. And I said, so that's what I'm going to do. And so she's like, you know, I have three kids. And so my mind, I was like, crap, should I back out? Like, I didn't know really what to say. I didn't know what to think at the time. Then like in my mind, I was just like, it really wouldn't matter. And so I was just like, okay, I can't back out. I done said it already. So that was that. Six months later, After nearly eight years apart, Patrick and Rebecca became Mr. and Mrs. Myers. The newlyweds were happy at first, but then things quickly began to deteriorate just a few months into their marriage. We were just in a rough place in our marriage because we haven't seen each other. Like our first two years of marriage, I was working close to 14-hour days, and so I'll go to work, I would leave the house at 5, sometimes 4 o'clock, and I wouldn't get back home until the same time, anywhere between 5.30 to almost 8 o'clock. And Rebecca was leaving about 9.30, and so I'll get home, and all I want to do is just, I was just beat and worn out because I was doing landscaping, and, you know, we just didn't have time to talk. Basically, the only thing we talked about was the kids, what the kids were doing, and then we never got a chance to focus on us. So what happened is, like, after those two years, we got on the same schedule, and then we were actually trying to be a couple and live together. And now we had all these underlying issues where she had baggage from her relationship with this guy that abused her and did all different things, and she expected me to fight the way that she wanted to fight, how she fought with him. I felt like if the things in our marriage were important to him, he would fight for them and fight with me for them. But he felt the complete opposite. I felt that if those things were that important because of the way I grew up, like I never saw my parents fighting ever. 
they always talked their issues out. And so that's the way I used to approach things. And that's just my personality type. I'm usually chilled and laid back. And if I love you, then I just want to talk about the problem and then let's fix it and let's just move on because life's too short. That's the way I think about things. That's the way I wanted to, to fight with things, but she was much different. And if I fought like that, then you were my enemy. If you're my enemy because of my mentality when it came to fighting, uh, like in the streets and, you know, when I had having to survive, then I can have no emotion for you. I cannot have love for you. You are, you're no longer a person to me. And so for four years, it was like that. And it was getting worse. Like we would argue over I mean, the things that we would argue were, were just ridiculous. We would fight over cereal and just got progressively worse. And then like the, the major incident that happened was that we were going car shopping. We were actually talking about having a kid, our own kid, because I'm a black guy with three white kids. And I was like, you know, we have really got to mix up the color in this house. It's ridiculous. I needed someone to look like me besides the dogs. We got two black dogs. We were talking about this and then we started arguing on a biblical scale. We were driving home. At the time, she was very well known for cutting to hurt you. And it was too much to be saying in the state of mind that I was. And I kept asking her to stop and kept asking her to stop and chill out. And she knew every button to push and she was doing it just to get a rise out of me. And she flipped the switch. I blacked out for a minute and I saw myself beating my wife's head into the car window, like smashed her head through the window to get her to stop. And I knew in that moment that it was getting ready to become action because I was losing all physical control of myself. And so I just pulled over all lanes of traffic, almost sideswiped the car and the cars were like weaving out of the way. I just told her, you got to take the car. I, I can't deal with you no more. And I jumped out the car. And we were like five or six miles away from the house at the time. I got out and I just was just like, I was walking home because I had to clear my mind because I knew in that moment I was going to kill my wife, so. It took every bit of strength I had to, to go home and not follow him while he walked down the street and roll my window down and, and tell him, just get back in the car, just get back in the car. And But I, I went home and it, it took him a while. When he came home, we, we realized it was it was time to do something. So we, we looked for counseling for a long time. Secular counselors don't really fight for you to stay together. And oddly enough, Christian counselors were expensive and we didn't have the money to, to do counseling. We looked for a long time and finally Patrick found the Live the Life program with the Adventures in Marriage. And it was $20 a person, so it was $40. And it was a, a whole weekend, two days of an intensive workshop kind of thing. And as soon as he found it, he's like, all right, this is it. We got to do this. It cost $40 and we had like $47 in the bank. And that's where we put it. And as they both now say, that $40 helped save their marriage. They learned about a husband and a wife's unique, beautiful and important roles within marriage and more practically, how to lovingly fight and resolve. After the retreat, there was yet another huge fight, but it became a turning point in their lives. A little less than a year ago, I can't even tell you what we were talking about. I have no idea. 
but it just spiraled out of control. We we got into a, a knockout drag out fight and we were yelling. Um, oh, I remember what it's about. I said you wasn't a good wife. Uh, you didn't clean the garage. So that, uh, he that loves his garage and, and apparently I didn't clean it and I, I put my work stuff in it. And so he said I wasn't being a good wife, which um, I am sure all of the female audience understands how, how that. But although it was my stuff I in, said it. in his space, because I don't care about how clean the garage is, it wasn't important <laughs> to me. And so, uh, I but it, about. it makes sense now because I was completely inconsiderate to the fact that that was his space. He'd made the requests and I ignored them. I have to admit, I ignored them multiple times. So we're not going to say that, that him calling me not a good wife was justified, but... Um, I mean, I was right, but I was wrong at the same time. That's all. I'll leave it at that. I apologize. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, so that turned into this big thing. And there were words. I threw a shoe. I did. I threw a shoe. There's a hole in the wall behind our TV because um, our TV's been very strategically placed. And it just turned into a nightmare. And it took that and it took yelling and getting mad and storming out of the house and all of that to to bring us back to where this is still something we have to fight for and you're listening to the story of patrick and rebecca myers it's our relationship radio hour and this is always brought to us by the great folks at communio and you can learn more about them at communio.org if you have a church any kind of group where people gather and you want to try and help solve marriage problems in that group. And my goodness, I'm sure there is great need for this this service all around this great country. Again, go to communio.org. When we come back, we continue the final part of our Relationship Radio Hour story, Patrick and Rebecca Myers' story, both from Jacksonville, Florida, after these messages. This is Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories in our relationship radio hour and the final portion of Patrick and Rebecca's story. I knew that my marriage had to be more important than ever fighting like that. And so I was trying to get this point across to her. And, and that's when he said he said that phrase. He says, at some point, we have to realize that the fact that we're married and together is always going to be more important than anything we ever argue about and I've always known that but when he said those words it flipped a switch and I really truly believe that at that moment when he said that phrase 
it made anything that we could possibly argue about almost null and void. And, and at that moment, we decided that if we had an argument like this again, that we were just mutually going to walk away. For me in that moment, I don't think it was like an ultimatum where we were just like, oh, well, we're just going to argue again and just potentially separate. I think I was in a place where it's like our marriage is on the line. We have to bet our marriage on our arguments. And so the stakes are that high for us. All bets are off. If we argue again and we fight with each other again to that point where we're just that crazy to each other, then that's the end of our marriage. And we said till death do us part. And I think we both have the mindset that, you know, it is till death do us part. So the only option for us is not to ever treat each other like that again, to put God first. Because that's one thing we never really did, honestly, was put God first in our marriage. Like we did it, but then we would play around with it. But we never actually truly committed our hearts and our marriage and each other to God. And that's something that in that moment changed the whole dynamic of a marriage. So, so now we are, we're friends. I could actually say that she's that friend to me that I had back when I was a young man, when I was 20 and she was 18. 18. She's that friend to me where we can sit up and talk and poke fun at each other and, and laugh and stuff like that. Cause that was one thing that we didn't have in our marriage was laughter. We didn't laugh at all. Now we laugh and we joke with each other, but we had to put our marriage on the board over everything else that we were doing and dealing with. Having been through so much individually and together, Patrick and Rebecca now regularly share their story and lessons with other couples and their friends who are so often facing the very same underlying problems. Here's what Patrick tells other men. For the fellas, everything about men is about pride. And when you're married, your pride has to be forever put in the dirt and buried because you can't have pride with the woman that you love and you can't have pride before God. And so what it takes sometimes is for us as men to take the blinders off, to go look in the mirror and to look in a, in a very unfiltered mirror where we could see what kind of men we are. When you get in those arguments, your wife is complaining about certain things. Are you meeting that need? Are you stopping that thing that she's saying that she's doing? If your wife's saying that, hey, you smoke too much, you don't spend enough time with the family, you're all that kind of stuff. And we are so bothered by it. And, and it's all because of pride, because she's telling you exactly what she wants and what she needs from us. And then at the same time, we ignore those things. And we're just like, what do you want me to do? Blah, blah, blah. But we don't never go, what can I do to change this? And so, men, my suggestion to you is if you ever get to this place where you're just completely lost. Take a step back, look at the kind of man that you are and really judge yourself in the harshest light possible of what kind of husband you are, what kind of father you are. Do you keep your word about every single thing that you told your wife you was gonna do? Are you the spiritual leader in your home? Are you the, the father that you should be to your kids where the, the kids are more important than the TV and the Xbox and everything else that you got? If you get a chance to go into counseling or anything like that, don't go wanting your wife to be fixed. You need to go wanting you to be fixed and your heart between you and your Savior fixed. Because once you and God get things right, you can always get things right with your wife. And you have to be able to come to your wife and confess all those things too. Like come to her, 
and be like all those things that God's dealing with your heart with you should be confessing to her no matter how crazy it is or how dangerous it is or the damage it caused you need to be completely honest and start there and build those avenues of trust and honesty and here's some of Rebecca's hard-earned wisdom that she shares with other women I don't know if my husband knows but I'm always up before him I get up and before I go out of the room I put my hand at the foot of the bed and I just barely touch his feet and I just pray for him it's not major it's just that he hears God's voice and he sees God's path and that God shows him how to guide our family and that God shows me how to help him do that guys they're always going to do things that annoy us and bother us there are a million things that they do that we don't always have to say and complain about don't let your husband suffer the mistakes of the guys that have hurt you in the past. I did that for a very, very long time. My husband, he was a fighter, he was a drug dealer, but to me, he is gentle and he's always been gentle and I ever have never feared that he would hurt me. But he suffered that baggage and that anger for probably six years before I let go of that. And the last one, one of the biggest things that always made me angry, that we always fought about, were the things that I thought my husband should be doing, but he wasn't doing. I thought he should have fixed my dryer by now, or I thought he would have seen that the light bulb was out and would have changed it. Um, I had a lot of expectations for my husband that he was not ever aware of, that I didn't ever mention or ask him to do. And therefore he was constantly not doing the things that I think he should be doing, but I never once asked him to do those things. So one of the biggest things that we learned from his parents was to not have expectations. If there is something I would like my husband to do, I need to ask him and then have faith that he'll get it done. But that doesn't mean that he'll get it done in exactly that moment, the time I want it done, and maybe not even the way I want it done but that I need to just let go of that and just ask him to do something and rely on the fact that he, that he will. You can't get mad if he's not meeting your expectations if he was never even aware of them. So we're by no means a perfect couple, but we've learned to apply the tools that people have invested in us and taken the time to invest in our marriage and help us. We've found a platform where we can use the story of our broken mess of a marriage and where we've allowed ourselves to put God first and to put each other first and to grow and move forward together. We still have rough days, but our rough days are nothing compared to what they used to be. We've gone forward with Live the Life and we've been trained as marriage coaches. Patrick is the youth pastor at the Ville Church in Jacksonville. I run an art entertainment company. So we've, we've got an opportunity to share our story with a lot of people and let a lot of people see where we've been and what we've gone through and, and offer a little bit of, of hope that, that there's something better. You're never too far that you can't come back from it.
And thanks to J.P. DeGantz and the folks at Communio for bringing us this story. All of our Relationship Radio Hour stories, go to communio.org to learn more. We're not a perfect couple, but we use the story of our broken mess of a marriage to help others. And what a great message. And any marriage who says they've never had broken messes, well, they're just stone-cold liars. And we have nothing to learn from anybody who says anything of the sort. This is such open and raw stuff. Thanks, a special thanks to Patrick and Rebecca for sharing their broken mess with everybody listening. Relationship Radio Hour, Patrick and Rebecca Myers' story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and our next story is about finding meaning and purpose through acts of sacrificial service. Tracy Grant is the deputy managing editor at the Washington Post. She's also the author of the essay that appeared in the Washington Post, I Was My Husband's Caregiver As He Was Dying of Cancer. It was the best seven months of my life. Here's Tracy to share her story with us. Almost 12 years ago, my world, as I knew it, ended. My husband of 19 years, the father of my two sons, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Over the course of seven months, Bill went from beating me silly on the tennis court to needing my help to go to the bathroom and bathe. It was the best seven months of my life. Maybe I don't actually mean that, but it was certainly the time when I felt most alive. I had lived 42 years before I heard the phrases, we have a problem, multiple metastases, on the brain, probably in the lung as well. I had become a respected professional, a responsible and I hope beloved parent, but I had yet to discover the reason I was put on this earth. During those seven months, I came to understand that whatever else I did in my life, nothing would matter more than this, even if I didn't really understand what this was. For me, there were no more bad days I discovered that the petty day-in, day-out grievances of an irksome co-worker, a child with the sniffles, or a flat tire pale in comparison to the beauty of spontaneous laughter, the night sky, the smells of a bakery. Some days were more difficult than others, but there were moments of joy, laughter, tenderness in every day if I was just willing to look hard enough. I found I could train myself to see more beauty than bother, to set my internal barometer to be more compassionate than callous. But I also discovered that with each day, my heart and soul grew more open to seeing this beauty 
than at any other time in my life. When she was running for president during a town hall, Hillary Clinton was asked about her faith. And I read a treatment of the prodigal son parable by the Jesuit Henri Nouwen, and there was a line in it that became just a lifeline for me. Practice the discipline of gratitude. I had never thought about the lessons of Bill's illness in quite that way. But as soon as I heard it, I realized that's just what I had been doing during those months. I had been training myself to be grateful. Caregiving has gotten a bad name in this country. Being a caregiver to someone you love can be transcendent, a gift. And yet, for too many, it feels like punishment. There are lots of good reasons for this. Among the nation's more than 34 million unpaid caregivers, many are aging and ill spouses caring for equally aged and sicker mates. For some, caregiving lasts for years rather than months, and respite services that would allow for a little time off from the relentless nature of the challenge aren't always in place. I concede I was very fortunate when my husband became ill. I was young and healthy. I had a great employer who provided even better health insurance. My bosses basically told me that my full-time job, for which I would continue to be paid, was to care for my husband and children. In the early days after Bill's diagnosis and brain surgery, being a caregiver called me to be the best reporter I knew how to be. There was a heady sense that I could out-MacGyver this disease by my resources, intellect, and grit. I found clinical trials, talked to oncologists in Texas, Pennsylvania, and New York. I knew which chemo drugs would work in the brain and which would work in the lungs. I was relentless in making doctors and insurance companies answer my questions. It gave me a sense of purpose and it gave Bill great comfort and more than a few chuckles to overhear me reading the riot act to some poor insurance rep who had told me that a treatment wouldn't be covered. I don't know what it feels like to be an athlete in the zone where every pitch is a strike, every shot a three-pointer, but those months were as close as I believe I will ever come. I was at the top of my game. In the latter days, being Bill's caregiver meant being fully present for as many moments of every day as possible. Even ones where my formerly strong, independent spouse needed the type of help that would have seemed unthinkable months earlier. Well-meaning friends suggested antidepressants or sleeping pills to help me take the edge off. I can certainly understand needing to do that but I didn't want to be less than 100% present. I didn't want to miss or forget a moment. When it became hard for Bill to navigate the stairs, he slept on the family room sofa, 
and I slept on the floor next to him, at the ready if he needed help getting to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It was in some ways reminiscent of having premature twins and never sleeping more than a few hours at a stretch. With the boys, I prayed for the day I would no longer have to tend to them in the wee hours. With Bill, I prayed for another month, another week, another day of being able to have him to care for. When I couldn't sleep during those nights, I took to praying the rosary and then began praying it daily even if I had no difficulty sleeping. For me, the repetition of the Hail Mary while caressing pearlescent beads helped slow my breathing, calm my mind. I came to feel naked if I didn't have beads in a pocket or a purse within easy reach while scans were performed, IVs dripped, test results waited for. Even during the moments when I was most angry with God, I found I could talk to Mary on the theory that she knew a little bit about being challenged by God. Today, saying the rosary is part of my morning ritual, done while walking the dog and bearing witness to the moment when night relinquishes its purchase to a new day. During Bill's last weekend, we had dinner together. At that point, we no longer held on to the illusion of MacGyvering our way out of this predicament, although we still believed that he might come home one more time. We sat by side on his hospital bed, sharing a Subway sandwich and watching television. Later, a relative visited, and I noticed almost reflexively to myself that she had changed her appearance, and not in a favorable way. It was the kind of thought I'd usually keep to myself, but just then, Bill voiced exactly what I had been thinking in that eerily intuitive, ruthlessly truthful way he had, and I found myself laughing out loud. I could live with this man, even as compromised as he is, needing as much care as he does for the next 40 years, I thought to myself. He would be dead in four days. A dozen years later, I haven't started a foundation to cure cancer. I haven't left the news business to get a medical degree. I work, I pay the bills, I try to be there for our sons. I will never again be as good a person as I was when I cared for Bill. I will never again have that high a purpose. But every day I try to find and put into practice the person I was during those seven months. I try to be a little less judgmental, a little more forgiving, a little more generous, a little more grateful for the small moments in life. I am a better person for having been Bill's caregiver.
it was his last best gift to me. And what a gift for all of us. What a love story, folks. What a beautiful story. And again, it's Tracy Grant's story. In a way, her husband Bill's story, at least his final days. I was at the top of my game as a human being, she said. Tracy Grant's story, Bill's here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Your stories are some of our favorites. And today, we have on one of our regularly featured guests, and that's Stephen Rosiniak. Many of his pieces have been published in the Great Chicken Soup for the Soul books. This one he wrote during the time his daughter Tracy was a high school gymnast. Here's Stephen. She didn't make a sound. You have a daughter, the doctor announced, before whispering something else to the nurses. His eyes silently spoke volumes as the OR team quickly went back to work. Not even a minute old, and already I felt such love for her. And still... I was absolutely powerless to help my baby girl. But I'm her daddy, I thought to myself. I'm supposed to be able to protect her, to keep her safe. And still, all I could do was watch from the sidelines and do nothing. It was out of my hands. She came home from the hospital five days later, and for a while, I kept her safe, for as long as I could. Until the time came when I couldn't. Destiny demanded that Tracy would one day become a gymnast. After all, she began practicing for the sport while still sleeping in a crib. Twice, Karen and I found her roaming the house long after she and her stuffed animal friends had been tucked in for the night. Determined to learn how this feat was being accomplished, we waited and watched, and eventually we saw our not-quite-two-year-old scaling the sides of her crib with the amazing agility of Sir Edmund Hillary repelling Mount Everest. Rather than running the risk of her plummeting during one of our nighttime escapades, we thought it best if she made the transition from crib to big girl bed. But in hindsight, how could we have known that her perilous climbing adventures would one day give way to her spending her autumn afternoons on blue matted floors as a member of her high school gymnastics team. In retrospect, I now view her early years as a time when the risks she faced were comparably minimal to those before her today. A time, not so long ago, when her blankie and her daddy's arms were more than enough to keep her safe. In the moments leading up to the start of the competition, both teams were warming up out on the floor. 
A dread began to grow within me as I watched the slow and calculated maneuvers being executed atop the balance beam by two gymnasts as they tweaked their routines in last-minute preparations. Tracy, however, wasn't one of them, at least for the moment. Instead, I saw her stretching on the floor in her new competition leotards, or leos, as she'd recently corrected me. Soon enough, though, she would be out there performing, and once again, I'd be helplessly watching from the sidelines. Admittedly, what scares me the most is that when Tracy competes on the beam, she's on her own, potentially at risk, vulnerable, and through it all, I feel as I did in the moments following her birth. Absolutely powerless. And for me, this is a problem. I'm her daddy. I'm supposed to protect her and to keep her safe. After all, this has been my job forever. But today, once again, when she begins her routine, all I can do is watch from the sidelines and do nothing. Once again, it's out of my hands. For almost two hours, she was out there, on her own, and when she mounted the balance beam, I held my breath and watched. A twist, a turn, a handstand, some fancy footwork, a surprising cartwheel, a few leaps, and then an aerial front tuck somersaulting dismount, all safely executed, her hands raised in the air, her smile radiant. She nailed it again. Back in the stands, my breathing resumes. She's getting better every day, honing her talents, mastering her skills. Later, on the ride home, we rehashed the entire meet, and I realized, at least for the moment, my little girl was safe. And my grudging admission, she's not so little anymore. How did this happen? I mean, when did my little crib-climbing escape artist suddenly become this 16-year-old Leo-wearing gymnastics competitor anyway? I'm well aware that my fears of watching her perform, especially on the balance beam, are in part a metaphor for all the concerns that I'll always have for her well-being. It's inevitable that as she grows older, she'll be confronted with so many of life's obstacles. And when she is, I'll always be there, still a little nervous, sometimes worried, but always proud of her, just like I am today. And so, for the rest of her gymnastics career, I'll quietly remain another spectator daddy sitting in the stands, continuing as she competes, to both cringe and celebrate her determination and independence as she has the time of her life out there on the beam. And thanks as always to Stephen Rosiniak for the work he does for us, and thanks to Faith for producing the story. And my goodness, what a story it is of a father, well, in the end, just having to do nothing sometimes and watch and just support his little girl and be there when she falls. That crib-climbing escape artist is now walking the high beam and performing on the high beam 
It's a great metaphor for life. And in the end, what a great father-daughter story. So much is written about fathers and sons, not enough about fathers and daughters. And of course, mothers and their sons and daughters too. These things we spend a lot of time on here on Our American Stories. We love your stories, your father-son, father-daughter, mother-son, and mother-daughter stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites, your stories. Thanks to Steve Ursiniak, his story, his daughter Tracy's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're about to hear the story of Michael Cole. And that's a name you may not know, but you know the character he played if you're old enough. He played Pete Cochran in The Mod Squad. That Steve McQueen-like handsome character. The rugged good looks. The girls, oh, they loved him. The guys, they wanted to be him. He had that edge. He was sensitive. He was tough. He was a guy who didn't back down from a fight. He never looked for one but he wouldn't back down. Well, Michael Cole, he recently released a searing autobiography, I Played the White Guy, and it is a tough read, but it's an important one. And this story has the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, and my goodness, Hollywood couldn't come up with a story like this, as this man struggles with his demons from the earliest time on. It's an honest confession, and Monty Montgomery, our intern, Well, he does a heck of a job here with this story. And let's begin, as we always begin, or try to here, with the voice of the subject. Here's Michael Cole. We were on location in a place called Malibu, California, and the phone rang. The guy gave it to me, and he said, it's from Dallas. And I said, I don't know anybody in Dallas, but... Maybe it's a fan or a friend, or so I better respond. And the voice on the other end says, Hey, they called me Mickey because of the Irish, right? Hey, Mickey, uh, it's your dad. I bloody froze, which I'm doing right now. I just froze. I said, My dad is dead. And he said, No, 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 you're real, Father. I said, Shut up. If you ever call me again, or try to get a hold of me, I will kill you. And you stay away from Ma. You stay away from Ted. You stay away from me. Because if you don't, I will kill you. You have no idea the pain that you've caused our family. Actor Michael Cole never knew his father. He had left him and his family when Cole was in the first years of his life. A life that would be chocked full of twists, turns, and struggle. But there was one person in his life who remained his rock. His mother. We called her Ma. We would just have to wait. Sometimes, all day, I'd sit up by the bedroom window in the attic and wait for her to come home and Sometimes she had a night shift somewhere. It had all these jobs that were very difficult. And 
But she always made sure that Ted and I were cleaned and we were dressed as good as we possibly could be. She found a job in a really nice clothing store. And when we were about oh, six or seven, we start, we modeled some clothes. And the, the background was uh, the capital of Wisconsin in Madison. And the store let us keep those clothes. So that's what we got through some pretty harsh winters with, etc., etc. Ma worked very hard. One of the most extraordinary struggles for Michael, his brother Ted, and his mother came as a result of a sudden move out of Wisconsin in a futile attempt to find Michael's father. Well, we're only two, three years old. And uh, Ma said, guess what, boys? We got, I remember this so exactly. I got tickets to go to Dallas. We're going to go find your dad. I got very excited. But, so we got on the train and we went down to Dallas. Couldn't find him anywhere. I know he ducked out of town somewhere. I don't really know that, but that's what I think. And now we're broke, limited, this beat to hell uh, little room somewhere. So we got, she. oh, she sold peanuts at the Cotton Bowl. You know, the big football game in there. And she sold peanuts and, to get us some money so we could get back to Wisconsin. Michael became the protector of his mother at a young age, filling a void that his biological father had opened when he abandoned them. But Michael could not protect himself from a problem that would follow him through adulthood. I was probably about 11 or 12, and things weren't really going any better. We lived in a pretty tough neighborhood. Anyway, I started drinking and pretty soon I I kept on drinking. And for years and years, and I would find myself stealing booze from liquor stores around the neighborhood and, and it was no good. I, I mean, I if you, you could if you were tough, let me put it that way, because all I was doing was drinking and fighting. And if you were tough, you drank a lot. <laughs> I, I wasn't afraid of a soul, except maybe my own. During this time, Michael's mother became pregnant with the child of her boyfriend, a man that Cole had less than a smooth relationship with. I didn't want anybody to to have my ma except me and my brother. And this guy was a military type guy. And whoa, all of a sudden they were restrictions and uh, that I hated restrictions of any kind, any authority. See, I'm starting to get worked up now. We'd get in arguments and fights. And I mean fights, he was a big guy too. He always reminded me of John Wayne. We're arguing like hell over something and Ma was pregnant. She was sitting in the corner on the rug crying. And I said, you son of a bitch. Can't you see what you're doing to Ma? She's gonna lose the baby, is that what you want? And I put your goddamn gun away. And uh, he, so he looked over at Ma and he had this 45 pointed right up between my eyes. 
and I didn't give a sh**. But he looked over at Ma and slowly put the gun down. Michael's mother would ultimately give birth to a stillborn child. The loss had a profound effect on him. Soon, Michael would be the father of his own child, though. With a girl from a powerful Madison family who was the same age. 16. I went to a, a priest and somebody I knew at the local big paper, the Wisconsin State Journal, and told them about the situation so nothing would happen to that little baby because we both wanted her. I don't care if we were nine or, or, or 38, we wanted that child because I think in the back of my mind, it was, I'm not going to be like my own biological father. And we got married in Milwaukee in an apartment. And there was, I thought, I swore, I said to Mama, I'm done drinking. I'm, I, 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 no more fights. That's it. For, for, I don't know, second or third week, I was at this new school in Milwaukee, which we had moved to from Madison. And I had my foot out a little bit, out from under the desk. And this bastard coming along and he kicked my foot. See, I was the new kid, right? But he had no idea what was raging inside. And I found the son of a bitch afterward. And I had made one friend who was a pretty tough guy and we got that bastard. Because he was just, just being an ass. And I slammed his head into the locker and blood was pouring all over the thing. I don't want to sound tough here because I'm not, but it was at that time. I was just raging inside. And uh, on the way home from that, if that wasn't enough, I saw a young boy get hit by a car and killed same day. I got to get out of here. I got to get back with Sharon. I, I, I'm going to be 16 pretty soon. I can go to school. My probation officer couldn't even stop me. And uh, next day I got on a Greyhound and went back to Madison. Michael's first marriage would ultimately end in divorce. Michael was lost, lonely, and drinking heavily, and decided to get out of Wisconsin and head west to San Francisco, a move that would change his life forever and fill a hole that had been opened for so long. It doesn't get much more raw than that, folks. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the highs, the lows, and the redemption of Michael Cole, author of I Played the White Guy, his story continues here on Our American Stories. And we're back here at Our American Stories with Michael Cole's story. 
And when we last left off, Michael had gotten married. He'd had a child, gotten a divorce, left Wisconsin for the West Coast. And San Francisco, to be more precise. And it was in the mid-1960s. And what a time in American history, especially out West. Here's Cole with what exactly happened during that transformative time in his life. I loved San Francisco. I, it was everything I, I'd heard it was, you know, the flower child. And myself and Dave, we worked out a couple of things where we could survive, even with the help of some prostitutes that we knew. Then I met a guy who was really, an, an, I loved him, and he helped me out. He happened to be the lighting person for... Uh, uh, Berkeley, and he asked me if I wanted to go with him, and so he, I could see what the hell he does, and I said, yeah, something happened. I walked out on the stage, and I said, this is strangely familiar. I started to think about the audience. There, there was finally my family, and I, I, I loved that. It's always been my feeling that um, within the arts and the creative community, you don't choose it. It finds you. Michael Cole, the man whose childhood had been quickly ended by unimaginable loss, now had a purpose, to be on stage. Michael started hanging out around theaters during this time, and soon the gears started to spring into motion. I, I was bartending right across from a big, beautiful theater in Hollywood. And uh, the, the cast would come in afterwards, and they would talk about acting. And one night a producer came in, and he said, "If you, you want to be an actor, huh, Michael? And I said, I think so. Yeah, something's beating in here that's not leaving me alone. And he said, what you got to do first? You've got to study. So he said, go see Estelle Harmon. She was the head of UCLA drama department. She was at Universal Studios handling the new talent, etc., etc. So I, I don't know my ass from first base about any of this, except that something was beating very much in my heart. So I, I went in, into Estelle's workshop. And there was this very pretty lady sitting there behind her desk. And she said, are you Michael? So she said, I want to read a scene with you. I didn't even know what the hell that meant. And uh, I'll never forget it. It was a scene from All My Sons. It was about during the war. Gucci Robinson was making bad planes. and Some of the flyers were getting killed. And anyway, we read that. And I'm his son. And I got really, really, really pissed. We had the scene was about them arguing. Fell asleep early this morning and I let her. Yeah, I know. I heard her crying. And when we stopped, I, I didn't know what to do. My hands were sweating. And, uh, and, and I looked up and Estelle just said, I want you to come back. And I won't charge you because I know you don't have any place to live. But that was only the start for Cole's success in Hollywood, and soon another massive break would come his way. 
there was a student at Estelle's, a girl, and she was going to do a scene at Paramount and uh, for a film that, that she was going to be in, or hopefully be in. And so she asked me if I would go, it was from Picnic, and she asked me if I would uh, come over and be her partner, scene partner and thing. And so, uh, sure, what first time ever in the studio, ever at Paramount. And um, I walked in and said hi to the casting person, etc., etc. And we did the scene. It really went very well. Uh, so they took her, she got the job, they took her in the back and I was leaving. Casting director says, uh, Michael, wait a minute. I want you to take this, you go study it, and come back at four o'clock. Why? <laughs> because Sterling Siliphant was going to be there and he was getting ready to do a series based on Sunset Boulevard. And we go back over there for, and I walk in the same day and sure as hell there's Siliphant sitting there, very handsome man. Uh, he could have been on either side of the camera. He said, here, read this, and he gave one to the girl. And the scene went wonderful, because this was a tough James Dean kind of guy, and I pulled something off, I don't know. I was kind of pissed and kind of, you know, I was, I was uptight. The guy was like Dean. And, you know, that didn't hurt I, at all. So after we do the reading, I was shaking. It's, it's just my hands are shaking now. Mr. Siliphant stood up and walked over to me face to face, like about six inches from my face, and said, Michael, I want to do this series with you. Almost fainted. Unfortunately for Michael, that series would never pan out due to Siliphant having a falling out with the network. But that didn't stop him. His name was now out in the Hollywood network, and people were noticing. Word got around to Aaron Spelling's casting director, and this agent who I immediately signed with said, uh, can you come over, there's a new show that Aaron Spelling is doing, and he's going to be a giant producer. And uh, I said, well, yeah, well, I still had my James Dean thing going. Yeah, but what? What's it about? It's called Mod Squad. That's the dumbest shit I ever heard. And so I walked in Aaron's office, and there's this tiny little man, one of the most powerful people in the industry, sitting behind the desk. Aaron, Aaron uh, launched into his spiel about Mod Squad, etc., etc. I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. What the hell does Mod Squad mean? I said, it's about police. And right away, that caught him. My attitude caught him. Because everybody else would be Googling and say, oh, this is so neat. This is so wonderful. Kids are going to love this. That. This is really dumb. And you want me to play a cop that busts other kids? Are you kidding? I would be with them. 
that's kind of the idea. You're never going to carry a gun. You're never going to. We're going to deal with drugs and the wars, the environment, uh, uh, racism. Because you got the three of us, you know, black, white, and blonde. Child abuse, even domestic violence. None of that stuff was ever touched by any TV show. And uh, and he said, I, I I told him I said. I think still this sounds like a dumb idea, and I'm going. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Aaron jumped up on his desk and he said, "Michael, Michael, don't go. Don't go. That's exactly what I want." The Mod Squad would run for a total of five seasons, racking up six Emmy nominations, four Golden Globe nominations, and would have a massive cultural impact upon America. But all good things have to come to an end. And the end was hard for Michael. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story. Michael Cole's book, "I Played the White Guy," and my goodness, it only gets more interesting. Michael Cole's story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Michael Cole. When we last left off, his massive hit show, The Mod Squad, well, it was off the air. It had left a cultural impact, but what happened next to Michael Cole? Well, let's take a listen to the last part of this remarkable story. First of all, it was the first time I really kind of had a family with Clarence and Peggy and Tyg Andrews. And even the crew, we had a beautiful crew that became my family. And so it was, it was rough. I was really drinking. What helped me along that line? I was got to do some really good plays. Uh, one was uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and we did that down in New Orleans. But it, it eventually wound down to not. I moved. I got a divorce, a second one. And I moved up into the woods in a, in a log cabin, literally, me and my two cats. I, I didn't know where the hell I was going. But somewhere along the very young age, I realized this, this thing called loneliness was always hanging around. All right, so you're a little lonely. You watch the other kids play with their dads and families, etc., But I made it up in my mind that this loneliness was very loyal, and it was not going to leave me. So I simply turned it around and made it my buddy, and it worked for many, many years. Finally, I had to, you know, I got out of that log cabin, and um, which I loved. But anyway, I went, walked into this bar where, and there was a friend I saw at the bar. And uh, a girlfriend, and, you know, a friend, friend, 
and uh, I said, hey, how you doing? And she said, fine, fine. Michael, I want you to meet my friend Shelly. And uh, she said, are you kidding? Shelly is beautiful. And she's intelligent, really intelligent. And she's still one of the guys. So there was this bastard sitting on the bar stool next to her that kind of kept leaning into her. So right away, I got my shoulder down in there between them. I started squeezing up to, which I'm doing right now, <laughs> squeezing up to the bar. And she, the f*** he want? And uh, rah, 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 then he went away. And Shelly and I started talking. And that was, oh, something happened really neat. I was talking to Shell, and all of a sudden in my heart, I hear, uh, it's her, Michael. It's her. And I said, I know, Ma. I know. I swear to God that happened. <laughs> and from that night on, she's 25 almost 30 years ago we've never been apart Michael's drinking was getting worse and Shelley went the distance to try to get help for him going as far as to take classes herself on how to deal with alcoholics but nothing was working and something more had to be done well, she had found a sponsor like you know for AA stuff that really wasn't working out you think you can do it on your own etc etc well Within two or three days from that, they had an intervention on me. And uh, I went to, uh, two days after that, I went to Betty Ford's. And uh, she, she was wonderful, but man, I thought I got drafted. That's, some of these places are tough and they don't, they're, they're there not to screw around. Take off your clothes, blah, blah, blah. Search, they search every cavity on your body because a lot of drugs will be snuck in and, uh, and wherever you could put booze too I guess and you know what I like I said I, I felt I got drafted I couldn't stand the fact that she, to watch the taillights when Shelly left we both were crying and stuff like that but uh, in, a, in, in a couple of days got to be a little better that a little better every day was you whatever like dorm like place you were in you got I got real close to some of the guys like there was a couple of guys from Vietnam there that were alcoholics and one guy I remember oh man he was a helicopter pilot and he landed down in the, in the grass, like with and flattened the grass with the blades and, and the guys came running out of the brush around there, jumped into the helicopter and he took off. Well, when he said, we gotta get out of here, he turned to his buddy, his co-pilot, and his face was gone. And he like became one of my best friends. And I understand he's doing fine now. I hope there's a lot of, I mean, I don't hope, but I, well, I hope you're listening if there's anybody out there that needs some help, because that's one of the roughest ones I ever heard. And he became an alcoholic, had uh, 
we became close and I, again, like I said, uh, I know he's doing really good today. It worked the other way too, kind of. Uh, we had like a reflecting pool, a reflection pool, whatever you call it. And uh, I would go out there and sit by myself and just think. You know, it wasn't that long ago where you had your name on every marquee in the country kind of thing. And now you're sitting here thinking about how you screwed up everything and how booze did it. And one day, a guy comes walking over to me and he says, hey, you're Michael Cole, right? Yeah. He said, My name is Mickey Mantle. Almost fainted. You all got, you all in the same uh, boat. Shelly and Jennifer came down. There was a thing called Family Week. And everybody's a little bit shaky that their loved ones are going to come down. And what you do is you sit in the middle of a room, face to face in a chair, and then all the rest of the Elkies sit around you in a big circle. And you sit there in the middle of the room and this person tells you how much you've hurt them. And I'm starting to cry right now again. My, my daughter was Daddy, when you and Mama were fighting and that kind of thing. Well, we just held each other for a long time. And then I had to do it again with Shelly. And I, I got to know at that moment that uh, we would be together forever. And uh, Shell basically said the same thing. And she couldn't do it anymore, and et cetera, et cetera. And so I totally understood. And uh, we had the whole joint was crying. Man, it was. Very, very powerful. And uh, we still are 20 some, 25, 6, 7 years later. We've never been apart. Cool would get better over time, and today is sober and living a much better life. He credits Betty Ford and his wife Shelley for that, but also something central to his life today his faith. First of all, it came really strong when I said before about the alcoholism that you have to have a somehow some kind of spiritual foundation this is the truth my mother called me at work one day she was crying almost hysterical and there was a crucifix i've never said this to anybody else but if it can help somebody out there it's true and she was crying, and she took me into the bedroom, and she had a crucifix that was on her mother's casket. And she said, look, and it was just a little brown wooden and plaster-like painted gold body. And from the crown on the head, there were little tiny drips of blood and f even to the s 
slice on the side where the spear was and down the inside of the legs and onto the feet where the nails were. And they were all very, very frightened and I just, that's when I really started calling on my buddy Christ. And I took off with him and we've remained the same. And great job on that, Monty. And that's Monty Montgomery, our Hillsdale intern. And thank you to Michael Cole for this raw and unflinching look at his own life. And that scene, boy, I mean, I'm holding back the tears as he's listening to his daughter and then his wife talk to him about what he'd done to her. And my goodness, that he was willing to listen, to bear it, and to do something about it. And then telling that last story about his buddy Christ and that cross and how it helped him carry over the finish line and become the man he'd always wanted to be, the father he'd always wanted to be, and the husband he'd always wanted to be. Michael Cole's story. This is Our American Stories.